thank you, Amy and Praise Team. Just to let you know that keep your eye peeled and posted for all the announcements and stuff because there are a lot of things that are happening and I'm not going to go into all of it here, so you have uh, a bulletin and you can check online. We'll be having the Haiti team uh, potluck and debrief and hear from them sometime in the future, uh, possibly next week. We don't know. We don't have any, haven't nailed it down yet, but Lord willing, we'll get those things figured out. A lot of things happening. I just found out, I think, we're going to be having Paul Hoyce's funeral. We'll be here on Saturday. There will be a visitation on Friday evening, this coming Friday evening, and then Saturday we'll have the, uh, the funeral beginning at 10 o'clock, I believe. Uh, the uh, graveside service will be sometime later at the Veterans Memorial uh, Cemetery, so that will not be something that will take place immediately after the, the service. Those are the details I have right now. Again, that's a little bit subject to, to change, so uh, don't, don't write that in stone. We have it marked down on the calendar. That's what we're planning on, and we'll try to confirm that, but I, I'm pretty sure that that's what's going to happen. That's what we've been told from the funeral home. Also, just want to ask you to continue to pray for uh, Aaron Westfall. He went into emergency surgery and had his appendix taken out, so he had an appendicitis, so please be praying for him. And I know that there are other needs and concerns and questions, but just uh, thank you for uh, uh, those who are here in person and for those online. We're just grateful for your worshiping with us this morning. I want to pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your faithfulness to us uh, in so many ways, and we come this morning. Um, and it's because of your faithfulness that we're able to be here, we're able to gather and worship, whether we're here in person or whether we're at home. I just thank you that you uh, care about uh, your body of believers. You care about us uh, spending time worshiping you and the singing of songs and in uh, spending time in your word, and I pray that your spirit would work in my heart and each of our hearts, that you'd open to us the uh, the truths of your word, that they wouldn't just inform our minds, but they'd transform our hearts and our, our lives. For your glory and the gain of your kingdom, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. When I was standing up here, I was reminded of a, a story about a, uh, a pastor in a rural church, and he came one Sunday morning, similar to this. It was a really, really wintry morning, and uh, kind of nasty outside, although it's, I think it's beautiful outside. The congregation was very slim that morning. There were very few people that showed up for, for church that Sunday morning. And the pastor preached his sermon. And when we got done, there was one or two people that greeted him as, he, as, as they left the, the, the church. And one old gentleman was a farmer. And, and he said, Pastor, he said, I, I, I just wanted to tell you. He said, um, when, when, it's, when it's, the cows come in to get fed and only a few of them show up, I don't usually give them the whole load of feed. And uh, I wish you would have just kind of waited and the pastor just said, well, that's too bad. I, I'm, I'm, I, feed, I feed you. I'm giving you the whole load of feed. So it doesn't matter how many people are here, how many people are online. Uh, this is what it is. This is what it's going to be. So we're, we're in Romans chapter 5, um, and it's the day before the Iowa caucuses. And I would encourage you to go to the Iowa caucuses, but it's the day before the Iowa caucus. And I want to say that it's pretty certain that most of what the political candidates are promising, they certainly will not accomplish, okay? That's just a given. What encourages me is that God is exactly the opposite. What he has promised, 
and what he has purposed, what he has promised he will fulfill, and what he has purposed he will accomplish. And as we study in Romans, in Romans chapter 5, we're coming to it, and Paul has told us what God has promised and what he has purposed, particularly in what's preceding, and what he has promised and what he's purposed that he wants all believers, he wants all believers to be confident in their eternal salvation, that we are eternally saved, and that's true for all who believe. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, a Gentile, or whatever, you're eternally secure in your salvation to all who believe. He's... We've discussed the the provision of the gospel in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through chapter 4, verse 25. The provision of the gospel, God's provision for us, the remedy for our depravity is faith in Jesus Christ, our justification by faith. That's what he's been talking about. And he's boldly proclaimed that it's not just an Old Testament thing. It is the Old Testament. This is faith, justification by faith is the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. It's the entire Bible. And now we shift into another section of Romans, okay? And in chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, all the way through chapter 8, verse 39, Paul moves us from the reality of salvation to the riches of our salvation. The prophet of the gospel. I want you to look at the uh, overview, this overview on the screen. So, no, go back to that overview if you would, Adam. So, we've got the priority of the gospel in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The pressing need of the gospel, that is, we're sinful and we need uh, a Savior. And then the provision of the gospel is chapter 3, 21 through 425, which is justification by faith. We're saved by grace through faith plus nothing. Has always been that way. It is always going to be that way. And now the prophet of the gospel. The first gospel gem uh, that we're going to mine from this section, 5.1 through 8.39, is uh, mine from his, this Paul's explanation, from this explanation of the justification by faith, is our salvation is certain. Certain salvation. Sure salvation. No need to question it. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at the, Paul providing us three insights into our spiritual condition, the spiritual condition of believers, for those who are justified by faith, that will uh, give us assurance that we're eternally saved. It's not just something that Paul said, okay, you can be, be a child of God and then you never know whether it's going to uh, leave you or not or whether it's going to perpetuate to eternity. No, it's sure. I'm in Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read through the, the first 11 verses if you follow along with me. If you have a Bible, that's great. If you don't, there's one under the seat, uh, under a seat close to you, I think, and you can follow along with me. I'm, again, I'm reading the New American Standard Version. It should be printed on the screen in front of you in case you just want to follow along. Therefore... Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace, in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult, or the ESV says rejoice, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. There's three spiritual insights, and the first spiritual insight for those justified by faith that gives us assurance that our salvation is sure, certain, eternal, is our condition of being at peace with God. 5.1, therefore, again, uh, therefore is a word that points us back. It refers back to the reality of our justification by faith. That's chapters 3, verse 21 through 4.25. And it reaches forward, pointing us to the rewards, which is the next section that we're, we're entering in chapter 5, verses 1 through 8.39. And then he says, having been justified by faith. That's a past action. It's something that's happened to us. We having been justified by faith. Speaks of past action in declaring us righteous on the basis of what we've done. No. We're not declared righteous on the basis of what we've done. We're declared righteous on the basis of what God has done for us in Christ. Faith, justified by faith. Faith is simply the reception of that graciously offered gift. In Romans chapter 3, we looked at in verse 22, it says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. When we exercise faith, we're receiving the gift that God has given to us that's made available through His Son. I asked permission for this, so... Uh, when Victoria uh, became a citizen, she received her citizenship, okay, in, as a U.S. citizen, which is a gracious gift which she received at her swearing-in ceremony. So when she was sworn in, she was receiving the gift extended to her of citizenship. When a person puts their trust or their faith, when they believe that Jesus' death paid for their sins, now this is the, the, the thing, we believe that Jesus Christ's death paid the debt for sin we owe and that his resurrection was God's acceptance and proof that God accepted that payment on our behalf. We're forgiven. We're pardoned. We're declared righteous before God. In Acts chapter 10, verse 43, Paul, uh, Peter was talking to Cornelius' house and it says, all the prophets testify of him, that is Jesus, that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. When we believe and trust in that Jesus Christ's death on the cross paid for our sins, we accept that payment on, uh, for us, we're pardoned. And we become his child. It's the only way that we can become his child. The most immediate reward for our justifications, we've been, or, or, our justifications, we have been Made to be at peace with God. That's what it is. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. We have it. We possess peace with God. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> at the moment we put our faith or our trust in Christ, we have peace with God. Peace here is not a feeling. It's a fact. 
Okay, so now there is peace which is a feeling, but here the peace is a fact. It's a fact of that we are no longer God's enemy. In Romans chapter 3, we talked about the fact and we learned the fact that all of us are under sin's control. And as a consequence, we deserve his judgment. We're objects of his wrath, okay? A righteous God considers rebellious people enemies. Not a very pleasant place to be. We're his adversaries. And get this, he is our enemy. Apart from Christ, all those who are living apart from Christ, God is your enemy. And you're his enemy. Even if we don't actually feel like any animosity towards God, if we're not in a relationship with God through Christ, we're his enemy. And he's our enemy. Now, that's not a very good place to be. Uh, a week ago, uh, Monday, I, I watched the, the national championship football game. And the, the University of Washington and the University of Michigan fans and, and players were adversaries in that game. They were opponents. Scripture just tells us we are God's opponents apart from Christ. And God's anger against sinner can, sinners can only be satisfied. Because we're objects of, okay, you ever mess up? You ever do anything wrong? When you're, okay, some of you are kids, uh, but when you were a child, did you ever do anything contrary to what your parents asked you to do? Yeah. And when you did that, or when you do that, guess what? They're not happy with you. And you know what? You're not really happy with them. And so you're kind of at odds with each other. And so what Jesus did on the cross was he took the punishment that we deserve so that we would be at peace with God. And that's what it is. In, the de in death, Christ took the fury of God's wrath upon himself. Now get this, as the satisfactory punishment for all sins, for all men, for all time. So that all who believe could be pardoned. And go from enemies to family. That's what God did for us in Christ. And as many as received him, to them gave you the right to become the children of God. The fact that we're at peace with God, if we're trusting in Christ, results in feeling the peace of God. Okay, so the fact that we are at peace with God results in the feeling of peace with God. Okay, um, Jesus said in John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. That's the feeling of peace. That's John 14, 27. And it overflows into heartfelt service for the one who brought us into his family. And Paul says in Colossians 2, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 13, Paul says, The love of Christ controls us. Having considered this, that one died for all, that therefore all died, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's the response of those who are at peace with God, who know the peace of God, and they live in harmony and service for God. And guess what? When the believers who are at peace with God are comforted, we are comforted by the peace of God. And then we're confident in the middle of the turmoil, knowing that we'll never be abandoned 
by the love of God. If you look at Romans chapter 8, which we will, uh, Lord willing, verses 35 to 39, there's nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And now, we go to verse 2. He says, through whom, that is Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace. Through Christ, we have access by faith to the Father. Um, up until Jesus came, how did people have access to God the Father? Mostly. Through the priest. Through the high priest. Mostly once a year. For a very brief time. On the Day of Atonement. They had access to, to, to God. But when Christ came, that all changed. Christ's shed blood as the final sacrifice for sin made it possible for all who believe to enter into the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Uh, says this, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, again, through the blood of Christ, because of the blood of Christ, we can enter in by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh. We don't have to have a high priest. We can come directly into the throne of grace. That's what Paul says, or uh, the writer of Hebrews says, in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We can come into the presence of God. I don't know if you thought about that. I was thinking about that this morning as I was looking over things. I, I can talk to God. You can talk to God. You can be in the presence of God. In the throne room of God. Remember Isaiah? Woe is me. For I am undone, you know, because he's in the presence of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah is, woe is me. Now, we should be woe is me. But we can come into the presence of God if we're one of God's children. That's the marvelous thing. And faith is the key. If you look at verse 2, faith is the key that unlocks the door to receive God's grace, that undeserved forgiveness. By, by faith, we have received this grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Okay, We, we received this grace. And the penalty that Christ paid to satisfy God's wrath against our sin is applied personally when we believe. Uh, in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer, he's, he's all freaked out because the, you know, Paul and Silas are out of jail and he's thinking he's going to have to take his own life. And he comes up to Paul and Silas and he says, what must I do to be saved? I think he's thinking about um, uh, not just his life, but his eternal life. Because Acts chapter 16, beginning there, and if you look a little bit earlier, uh, they, he, he must have heard about all that had happened down at the river when people were, were putting their faith in Christ. And so he's like, what must I do to be saved? What does Paul say to him? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So you say, well, there's a lot of stuff about faith and belief. Yeah, I'm just reading the text. That's what it's there. It's, it's faith, trust, belief. And the question is, do we believe? Refers, and, and, and he says that we have received this grace. And notice the text in verse 2 says, in which we stand. That's a marvelous thing refers to the present and the permanent enjoyment of God's gracious gift of salvation. If I've been saved by God's grace, I will be sustained by God's grace. 
and so will you. When Victoria received her citizenship, now she's a citizen. She didn't just be a she wasn't just a citizen on that day. She's a citizen all the time, every day. When we receive God's gift of grace in salvation, we become his child, not just for a day, but for eternity. Standing in God's grace. God's children are saved by grace and we're secured by grace. <laughs> so, hey, when we mess up, which we will do, when we sin, guess what? We aren't other than God's graciously accepted child. Now, that's not what it pleases him. But when believers sin, it doesn't remove us from our standing. The scripture, as we're going to look at again in the future, says where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. Okay? So when, when we sin, when we make mistakes as, as God's children, it's not that God all of a sudden writes us off and says, no, you're not. No, we stand. we're in the grace in which we stand. We stand in this grace. Now, assurance of God's favor that we're always standing in His grace is not permission to sin. And people get that messed up sometimes. Oh, well, yeah, you, go, you teach that once you're saved, you're always saved, so you can just live like the devil and God's got you saved. Well, no, you, you need to read 1 John, you need to read Hebrews, there's a whole lot of other passages, other sermons I could give you on that. But this is the one we're in. And what here, what we see is, and, and even as Paul goes on in Romans chapter 5, he says, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. And then he goes, God forbid. No, that's not it. So what I want to say is the assurance of God's favor is not permission to sin, but a promise that if grace can rescue the fallen sinner from sordid evil, it can restore the faltering saint from whatever error we commit. There's an assurance there that we're never outside of God's care. No matter how we mess up, our serious errors can be restored. And we aren't delivered from the power of sin so we can practice it. Okay? I'm not, God doesn't rescue us from sin so we can practice sin, no. But by grace we can overcome it. So we are saved by grace, we stand secure in God's grace, and we are sanctified and made more like Christ by God's grace. It's the process. Well, it's, it's by grace and grace alone. Romans chapter 6 and verses 11 and 12, which again we'll be working on later. But it says, even so, consider yourselves dead to sin. If you're a child of God, are we supposed to continue in sin because we've been saved by grace and sustained and stand in grace? No. Consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. So someone who professes to know Christ, who perpetually and unrepentantly lives in sin, I would say needs to question whether they really are in Christ. The first highlight, insight, is our condition of peace with God. And next we see, which the peace of God leads to this, our celebration of hope. In verse 2, the end of verse four, 2 through verse 4, and our celebration has two aspects. We rejoice in the hope of the glory, the glory of God. If you read with me in verse 2, it says, in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes 
it's hard for me when I read Paul because he just, the hope of the glory of God. I mean, will you just say it? Hope and glory. We hope in glory that, that, that we'll be glorified someday, that we will experience fully what we have been delivered and saved to. That is a relationship with God. Believers have no reason to fear the future, but we rejoice because God graciously brought undeserving sinners into his family. And Paul says this in Romans 9.23, in order, this is the reason he brought us into his family, in order to make known the riches of his, God's glory, upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. To show God's glory through his mercy on undeserving sinners who receive his glory, reflect his glory, and will one day enjoy his glory. It's a lot of glory. Here's the deal. We're shown God's glory through his merciful redemption of unworthy sinners. I'm going to keep saying that because it helps me remember that I do not deserve what I have received as a gift in being justified or declared righteous by faith. Believers are shown God's glory through his mercy in redemption. And then we share God's glory with others, because we have received God's glory, we reflect God's glory and share God's glory as those who will, 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 will see God's glory fully one day. Okay? Our salvation is God's gracious work. It's God's gracious work through Christ. Now, if you uh, are a person who does this, you can read down through this text, 5, 1 through 11, and you can underline, circle, or, or highlight, or whatever, through Christ. Through Christ, through Him, in Christ. I mean, it's all about what God has done for us in Christ. And so what we see is that our, 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 God's gracious work in our salvation, God's work in salvation through Christ on our behalf, was anchor, is anchored in the peace we have with God. It's actualized by our standing in God's grace, and it is anticipated that we will experience fully the glory of God in heaven, our ultimate glorification, as we are being transformed as his children into the image of Christ, the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says this, but, as, but we all with unveiled faces looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the image of the glory, uh, his image, the same image, the image of Christ from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. So as believers, we're being transformed into the image of Christ from glory, this glory, to ultimate glory. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Uh, but our, our citizenship uh, is not in heaven, or our citizenship is in heaven. We know that our citizenship is in heaven. If you have your Bibles, I want you to, uh, or I'm sorry, I said Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter, uh, yeah, there it is, it's up on the screen. Philippians chapter 3. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our lowly condition into the conformity of His glorious body by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So, we're being transformed. And we will be transformed into the image of Christ and experience that glory. When, when, 
Paul Hoyce, who's a beloved brother in our congregation, passed away. And his passing is a fresh reminder that this world is not our home. We're only passing through. And that God has reserved for us a place way beyond the blue. That's true. It's anticipating our home in glory way, way beyond here. And that's what he's talking about here. The, we result in the hope of the glory of God, that we will experience that glory. And verses 3 through 4 then uh, go on from here. Oh, because not only do we rejoice in the glory of God, the hope of glory, but we rejoice in tribulation that strengthens ultimately our hope. Verse 3, and not only this, but we also exult or re- rejoice in our tribulations. Um, that's a shocker. Okay, right there. Uh, believers are supposed to rejoice in tribulation. That sounds kind of crazy. We also rejoice surprisingly in our tribulations. The tribulations are describing what? Well, it was hard to get to church this morning. It was cold outside. No. It's not difficulties in this life. That's dealt with other passages of Scripture. But the tribulations here, or the, the ESV says sufferings here, the tribulations here are persecutions, difficulties suffered for following Jesus. The struggle we have because we're a follower of Christ. A persecution for Christ is expected. And believe me, I don't like this. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not really like signing up for persecution. But I was reading this morning in Acts chapter 14, and what is Paul doing? Paul is preaching the gospel, and they take him out and they stone him, and they think he's dead. And the disciples, apostles, the followers of Christ come out to see him, and he gets up and he goes to the next town, and then he preaches the gospel. Persecution is expected, 2 Timothy 3 uh, 12. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It evidences Christ's likeness. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15 20, If the world hates me, it will hate you. Why? Because you reflect me. Not only is it expected and evidence, but it's evaluated in light of eternity. The eternal weight of glory, Paul says in Romans chapter 18. We, 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 this present suffering, we, we measure it in terms of the eternal weight of glory. And finally, it encourages spiritual maturity. That's what this passage is talking about. Tribulation encourages spiritual maturity. This is the parallel to James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials. So this is the, the, the process, and we rejoice in the product, not necessarily the process. I don't necessarily rejoice in the pain that I go through in suffering, but I rejoice in the suffering because I know that on the other side, God is working and going to accomplish His purposes. So three, verses 3 and 4 just summarize the, how persecution produces an ever-increasing spiritual blessing and maturity. We rejoice. More than that, we rejoice in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Uh, that's endurance, okay? Uh, anybody who's ever 
run a race or competed in a sport or, uh, you know, shoveled snow, uh, you know, you, you endure, okay? You, you just keep pressing ahead in face of the opposition. You press ahead in face of the, the difficulty, okay? You're, you're there and you keep moving ahead no matter what. You persevere in the face of obstacles and opposition. Now, in verse 4, the, the persecution that leads to perseverance then results in what? Proven character. What does that mean? No. Interesting word. Uh, proven means tested so as to show genuine. So this is a testing that shows the genuine Christian character. Okay. And this is what he's talking about. So perseverance and suffering is the furnace in which spiritual character is forged by cleansing out all of the bad stuff. It's like the smelting of iron. And the dross, the waste stuff, comes to the top and is skimmed off so that the purity is left. And James 4 says, 1-4 says the same thing. Okay, you can, and the endurance have its perfect result in you that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. <clears throat> I thought about, I mean, I was, I've been reading an act, so, I mean, Paul, from the get-go, guess what? They were threatening Paul with killing him. As soon as he started preaching the gospel, hey, you're going to die, we're going to kill you. And then it got worse from there. That, that did, not just did they give him death threats, but they treated him cruelly. I just told you in Acts 14, they stoned him till he was almost dead. He experienced hard labor, and he was slandered and ridiculed and scorned. He spent, you know, three nights in the day, whatever I spend in the, in the sea, all this stuff, and cold and hunger, all these things for the sake of the gospel, which deepened his character to the point where he was able to say and command them, just do what I do. Be an imitator of me, Paul said, as I am of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Persecution. Now, some of you, is persecution at work. Some of you at school. Like, you're going to stand up for Jesus? You're going to let people know that you're a follower of Christ? Or just kind of melt into the woodwork? On your job. I'm not saying you have to wear a, you know, Jesus follower t-shirt. But will you stand up for what's true and right and honest? And the persecution that we have at work, the rejection by our family and friends. I don't know about you. Have you ever experienced some of your family kind of mocking you or ridiculing you or making fun of you because you are a follower of Jesus? Now you're just one of those Jesus freaks. You're just one of those crazy people. What is it about Jesus anyway? I mean... Every, all these Christians are just hypocrites. So are you just a hypocrite? Well, you know what? Yeah, I am because I'm not a perfect follower of Jesus. If you want to know what it is to be a perfect follower of Jesus, look at Jesus. The rest of us are imperfect followers of Jesus. That's why we're in the process of becoming like Jesus. If we were Jesus, we wouldn't be in process. But we've been rejected. And, and in society. I don't know about you, but I felt more in the last five years the, the oppressive nature on Christians in this, in America, not necessarily the world, but in America than I ever felt in my life. To be a Christian and openly Christian and to stand for Christian principles and all of these things are opportunities. <laughs> I, don't even, I, I don't even like saying it. It's like, oh yeah, this is fun, this is an opportunity. You know, no. 
It's an obstacle, but it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to endure. It's an opportunity to mature. And it's an opportunity to be secure. What's he say next? In hope. Tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. Notice how he comes back to where he was at, at the end of verse 2. Exulting in hope. He's, he's, he's talking about this, this hope thing, which is the final thing. This, all this and for all this, we're grateful. <clears throat> or we should be. Godly hope, at the end of verse 2, is strengthened in a believer's life through the spiritual refining process initiated by tribulation. That's the, that's the hard part to re- grasp. You know, as we endure hardship, believers experience what? What do we experience in the midst of hardship? If we're really followers of Christ, we experience God's great power. We see God do like, wow. Now, not always the way we wanted to, but we, we experience God's power. We experience not only His great power, but His glorious presence. His presence with us. And His gracious provisions, which increases our confidence and expectation that ultimately we're going to be in glory. Uh, God's taking care of me here. He's going to finish it in, in glory. And the third insight that He gives, that gives us assurance, is our certain deliverance in verses 5 through 11. Because notice that there are two ways that Paul confirms that peace with God is permanent. First of all, a certain deliverance is proclaimed. At the end of uh, of verse 5, at the very beginning of verse 5, and hope does not disappoint. The hope of verse 3, 4, is the hope that does not disappoint. Paul offers two reasons for confidence that our salvation is certain. And one response. Here's the reasons why. Why? Notice what he says. Our hope does not disappoint. Why doesn't it disappoint? Because... The love of God, I'm in the text, verse 4, 5, does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit. So it's the love of God. So that the reasons why we can be confident that he gives here certain of our deliverance are, first of all, because of the love of God. We're loved by God in our salvation. God lovingly gave us His Spirit to dwell within us. We're not going to be disappointed in the hope of our position and promised glory in Christ because God poured out our, His Spirit within us. And describes, when He poured out, like I don't know about you, but when I think about pouring out, I'm always like afraid I'm going to spill it, you know. My dad, he used to do this. He'd take it and he'd, he'd take the, the pitcher and he'd raise it high as he could up above the glass. And then he'd get it till it would just like, the, the water would actually be above the, the rim of the glass. But the, the, somehow, I don't know, you physics people would be able to explain it. Somehow it, was, it would still stay there. Like, what are you doing? But, well, when God pours out his spirit, he, he doesn't care if it spills over. You know, it's lavishly given. The Spirit of God is given lavishly to us without discrimination, generously imparting the Spirit to every believer. The moment we trust Christ, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, says that, um, do we have it? Galatians 4, 6? Maybe not. Okay, I can read. Galatians 4, 6. Get there. Yes. (laughs)
You can write that one down, right? Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And because you are sons of God, he has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The spirit of, of God. I don't know if you're like me, but I don't often think about the fact that the spirit of God dwells within me. As I go through my day, I have the spirit of God poured out within me. That's the manifestation of his love. Our salvation is secure through Christ, not only because he made a promise that he will not lie, but through the presence of God's spirit lovingly given as a pledge and a down payment. We saw this in Ephesians chapter 1. God's not going to lie about a promise he made, and he made a promise back to Abraham, right? He made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. We looked at that in verse, uh, chapter 4. He made a promise to Abraham, and then he sealed it with an oath in Genesis 22. Two things in which God cannot lie, and proving that that's the anchor of our soul. This hope becomes the anchor of our soul, which we cling to. The presence of God, lovingly given a pledge and down payment, sealing our inheritance. And then secondly, it's not just that, that God lovingly gave us his spirit to dwell within us. He lovingly gave us his son to die for us. Beginning with verse 6. And uh, you could go through this, and, and I've gone through it, and it's like all the time you see these repetition things. and these. But notice if you look with me at verse 6, it says, For while we were still helpless. Then go down to verse 8. God demonstrates his own love toward us while we were still sinners. Then verse 10, For if while we were in his enemies, we were helpless, we're sinners, we're his enemies. What does that mean? Spiritually bankrupt. Spiritually unable to do anything in our own self. We're like little babies who are born coming out of the womb. Totally helpless to do anything to rescue ourselves from the condemnation that we deserve. That's what it means. Our salvation comes from God alone. We are spiritually bankrupt before God, unable to rescue ourselves from condemnation. And notice it says, while we were ungodly. This is an amazing thing to me. People say, well, I'm not good enough to go to church. Then you should go to church. I'm not good enough for God to accept me. Uh, Yeah, that's the point. None of us is good enough. While we're ungodly, (laughs) Christ died for us, providing the only means to our acceptance by God and deliverance from judgment. That's the point. He died for us because we couldn't help ourselves. We're helpless, destined to die. Romans 8.32 talks about it more. You know, it's like, like if you would volunteer to take the place of someone on death row, you going to do that? Uh, not likely. But that's what Jesus did for us. He volunteered in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. This is the deal. <laughs> I love that. For all time. One sacrifice for all time. Sat down at the right hand of God. And he did it for us. And then he kind of takes a little, uh, Paul does, he kind of takes a little par- parenthetical thought here in, verses, in verse 7. Because what he does is he accentuates the marvel of Christ's dying for sinners by sharing how rare it would be for a human being to die for a righteous person or let alone a very good person. And absolutely not for a very wicked person. There's no human being going to die for a wicked person. A few might die for a righteous person, and maybe even fewer for a good person. That's my paraphrase of verse 7. 
Then we read verse 8. What are the first two words of verse 8? Come on, somebody help me. Class participation. First two words. But God. Some of my, these are like my, I'm not absolute favorite, but two of my favorite words in the Bible. Because what it does is it, it shows the absolute contrast between whatever comes before it and what God is doing. And when you get to the but God, it's a great thing. Human beings wouldn't do this, but God would do what human beings would not do. He would die for sinners. That's us. That's you. That's me. And while we were still sinners, not when we got our act together, oh yeah, God's really, he's going to chum me up to me and he's going to pat me up. No, because it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with God. Salvation is not the work I do. It's the work God does in and through and for me. But God, by contrast, and I get this, he hates sin. But he loves sinners enough to send his son to die for them. It punctuates his remarkable, selfless, and sacrificial love for the helpless and the hopeless sinners because he gave his son for unworthy scoundrels like you and me. Oh, how deep the Father's love. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Doesn't stop there. Another reason why we can be sure of our salvation, not only is it his giving in our salvation, his loving us, but God loved, we're loved by God because of, in, in our glorification. We're loved by God in our salvation. He gave us the Spirit. He died, sent Christ to die on the cross. But we're loved by God in our glorification. Verses 9 and 10 kind of punctuate the entire emphasis of the, the, this section on the certainty of our salvation. Because it says, if you look at verse 9, it says, much more. Well, there's, there's another repeated phrase. The ESV actually has a few more of the much mores than uh, the others. Most it just says, and, and also. The, ESV, the New American Center would translate sometimes, and also. But the two much mores in verse 9 and verse 10 are critical. Because we see the contrast. Verse 9, if we, if, if we have already been justified, much more than having now been justified by his, work, his blood, which is, we're, we're there, okay? If you're, if you're trusting in Jesus, you've been justified by his blood, Okay? If that's true, we have much more assurance that we shall be saved from the wrath of God to come. If we're already justified, how much more will we be glorified? He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. The harder part would be to save sinners. <laughs> the easier part is to take sinners and keep them saved. Okay? So that's the easy part and, and, and the hard part. 
We're saved from the wrath of God to come. This is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1.10. He promises that we'll be saved from the wrath of God to come. Now verse 10 is Paul's elaboration on it. He punctuates it here in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, if while we were enemies, if God lovingly and powerfully reconciled us as adversaries through the death of his son, much more can we be as his allies assured that our salvation will be secure. By his life. If in Christ's death he rescued us, by his life we're not going to fall out of that rescue. We're going to continue on until glory. That's the point. If sin was no barrier to our salvation, what's going to block our glorification? What's going to stand in the way of us being fully like Christ in glory and sharing the glory of God and enjoying the glory of God forever. Nothing. And our response to this, verse 11, again, another repeated phrase, and not only are believers certain of our ultimate glorification, we praise God for our present reconciliation. He brings us full circle. You look at the parallel between verse 1 and verse 11 sometime. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What is he talking about in verse 11? Oh, let's praise God because we have been reconciled. Peace with God and reconciliation are the same thing. Because reconciliation is taking a relationship of hostility and enmity and making it into a relationship of peace and goodwill. We were enemies and now we're family. And he says, now we rejoice in that. We praise God for our present gift of reconciliation. We are God's enemies, but through Christ, whose death satisfied God's wrath, all who believe are now his family. There's a song, right? Once his, en- once his enemies, now we're family seated at his table. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So if you're listening this morning here in person or online and you've never fully surrendered your life to Christ, you've never really waved the white flag of surrender saying, yes, I know I'm a sinner, I know I deserve God's punishment and wrath, but I accept what Jesus Christ did on the cross as the payment when I sinned. You've never done that? You are an object of His wrath. You're an enemy of God. And He's your enemy. And that doesn't end well. Okay? It ends with an eternity in hell. Eternal lake of fire. And I don't want you to be there. And the people who love you don't want you to be there. And God doesn't want you to be there. And so the only remedy for your problem is to turn from your sin, confess Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart you believe resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth you confess resulting in salvation. You never confess Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now is the day. Because these promises, these rewards are given only to those who are in Christ, who have peace with God. You're at enmity with God. You're an enemy of God. So turn and trust in Christ. And if those of you here, you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I've just got three bullet points for you. Uh, Things that are challenging to me from this passage. First of all, I want to revel in the fact that I'm at peace with God. I'm not his enemy. I'm family. And so are you. 
And so whenever Satan tries to put in your mind that somehow you're a scumbag and you're lower than the earth and you know, you, you're worthless and you shouldn't be on the face of the earth and nobody cares about you, everybody hates me, nobody loves me, guess I'll go eat worms, then guess what? I'm at peace with God. And if I'm at peace with God, then what follows is peace, the, the, the peace of God. If I have the peace of God, then what follows is the, the, the peace with God and the peace of God are, are coherent. I'm at peace with God. I'll know the peace of God. Sorry, that's what I was trying to say. Okay. Second, the thing I want to call us to, uh, to do is uh, that, we, that we should... Um, well, I would say the song, Revel in the Peace. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me your great salvation, so rich and free. Secondly, rejoice in the hope. Rejoice in hope. Hope is that confident expectation that we will be in glory. But rejoice in that hope in the midst of tribulation. Here's the challenge for you, for me, <laughs> a real challenge. Allowing tribulation to strengthen, not stymie, my conviction that I will eventually be in glory. Okay. And then rest assured that God who brought us into his family will not fail to bring us into glory. He brought me in. He's not kicking me out. And what better way to rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ than to remember what he's done by taking the bread and the juice which symbolized what he paid, the price that he paid so that we could enjoy peace with God and the peace of God and the presence of God for eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your work in our hearts. I thank you for this passage. It's a deep passage. There's a, a lot to it. I pray that in my own heart and each of our hearts that you would wash over us and that we would allow the Spirit of God to take these truths home so that those who don't know Christ would turn from their sin and trust you no matter how young, I pray that your spirit would work to draw people to yourself. And those of us who know you, Lord, help us to revel in the fact that we are at peace with God. Let us rejoice in hope, even in tribulation. Help us to keep our eyes fixed and be rest assured that one day we'll be with you in glory. We pray in Christ's name.